for coming out. I know it's a weekday and um, it's great to have everyone here. Um, so this, this course came about actually over at breakfast with Ant and myself. No, the seat's right here. Um, so we were just chatting about um, yeah, what, what, what we really want to sow into the life of the church and continue to sow in. And, uh, and so, yeah, one of the things that came up was really making sure that we have a general, a general good literacy about scripture um, as a church. Um, and I think more than that, a commitment to, to the authority of scripture as well. So um, that's where it came from. Um, so tonight is not a Bible study. We're not going to be studying something. It's more, it's more kind of a very high-level overview. We're only spending three, three consecutive Wednesday nights on this as to how, how to study your Bible. Um, and I'll start off with a scripture. Deuteronomy 6 um, says this. And these words, sorry, uh, this thing's not quite. I'm trying to make it a little bit better. It's not long enough. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. So really that means kind of everywhere. So when you're sitting at home, when you're walking around, when you're talking to your children, when you lie down at night, talking to your wife or your husband, when you get up in the morning, um, kind of the scripture should permeate our lives. We should, we should, um, it should be part of our whole life. So Gavin asked me, you know, what, what's happening this evening? So I said, I'm doing a course on how to study the Bible. He says, he says, that's easy. Just read it, Doug. I've already got it. So it's true. Um, we just need to, to read it. But I think what we want to look at is how best do we read it. And, um, we're going to look at three, three or four guidelines on how best to read your Bible. Um, and three, uh, four principles on, on uh, what to do as, you, as you're looking at Scripture. So before we start, let's pray. And... Um, and then we'll take it from there. So Father, we thank you that we've got an opportunity tonight to look at your word, to look at um, how best to study your word. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Jesus said of you that you will come and you will teach us um, all things and you will guide us to the truth. And we pray that you will do that tonight. We want to open our hearts to you, we want to open our minds to you, and we pray that we would be submitted to your word this evening. Um, and, and allow your words to teach us. Uh, Father, we, we live in a world that, that is so strong on individual rights, and I pray this evening that our individual rights will be submitted to the Word of God, um, because it's your Word, Lord. And we, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, so let's kick off with, with some of these guidelines. And... Uh, there's, there's three things that I like to do whenever I look at scripture. So, first one is to understand the chronology, or basically what happened when. So, when did things happen? Uh, often, you know, you'll read something in scripture and you think, oh, you know, read about Job. Now, was Job kind of beginning? So, let's assume we know he's in the Old Testament. Was he kind of early in the Old Testament, later on? 
Yeah. Where did he fit in with the Old Testament? Um, those kind of questions. So we'll, we'll have a look at how do, you, how do you kind of get all of that right. And then the geography. I always like to think about the geography and you know, how long it took people to go from one place to another. Um, what did it mean? Uh, it really helps you kind of understand that. And then the actual people of the Bible. Um, who did what? So uh, where did it happen? Where did it happen? And who, who, who kind of made it happen? Or who did it happen to? So we're kind of looking through those three lenses. Um, and all three of those, I'll put these slides out, so I don't really say too many notes. Uh, I'll send them off. All three of those really help us understand the context of Scripture. And we'll see a little bit later on when we look at the principles. Really understanding the context is super important. Um, so, the chrono, the, 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 the who, when did stuff happen in the Bible? Can't say that long way. Um, <laughs> I think having a general high level knowledge is, is a great start. So, just you know, what are the major events that happen in Scripture? Um, you know, and, and, and then how do the books of the Bible fit in? So, the, the Bible is made up of 66 books uh, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. They are not written chronologically. So, they're not written, Genesis is not the beginning, and no kind of end of the Old Testament. Um, they are mixed up, some cover other books, um, some kind of repeat the same history, but from a different angle. Uh, we see that a lot in the New Testament, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four Gospels written by four different people, pretty much around the same events, Jesus' life, but from four different, completely different angles. So Mark was probably a young, a really young person. We guess that because there's a a weird little verse in Mark where when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and then they go down and, and Jesus goes to kiss him to identify him on the cheek. It says there was a young man, a young boy there who was with Jesus that tried to run away and one of the Roman gods grabbed his cloak. And because this kid had sneaked out at night, he didn't have any underpants on. So when the God grabbed his cloak and pulled it off, he ran away naked. So it's a funny little piece of scripture. Now you, would, you wouldn't write that about someone else, but if... Yeah. You were little kid. <laughs> you would you would remember that. So he was he was probably a young kid at the time. He was part of the, the, the group who travelled around with Jesus. So we have from that angle, you know, through to someone like Luke who, who, who clearly studied a lot of the details, very orderly and structured. Um, so different different angles, but the same thing. And then we have Psalm 119, which is pretty much right in the middle if you count the number of chapters after Psalm 119 and the number four. It's roughly right in the middle of Scripture. And Psalm 119 is an interesting psalm. It's uh, all about the Word of God. And so right there in the middle of Scripture, you have a Scripture about the Word of God. And right in the middle of Psalm 119 is this Scripture. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So it's like this, the whole Scripture is really, God has put it together over thousands of years. It's incredible. Um, and, you know, there's all of this kind of symmetry and uh, it's, it's, it's a complete book, but it's made up of so many different little books, different parts of history, different people's perspectives. Um, it is quite amazing. All right, so timeline. Um, this is too small to see from your seat, but just to give you an indication, this is um, kind of a very high level overview of scripture. And I'm going to go through some of the key points. So obviously we have Genesis, the creation over here um, and we go through uh, so the first the first kind of major event so we've got Abraham's life um, early on you can see 
Noah, right at the beginning, if you want to know where Noah was kind of the, obviously you got Adam and then the first big character after that was Noah, and Noah's Ark would have happened very early on. Uh, and then Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and between Abraham and Jacob, you get the story of Job that fits in over there. Um, and then Jacob goes down into Egypt and the Israelites get enslaved for about 430 years in Egypt. Um, so before them, we've got kind of these main characters, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Job, and Jacob. Uh, Isaac between Abraham and Jacob as well. And then 430 years of, of slavery in Egypt. And then obviously Moses comes along and Joshua. And then we have the judges. And there's a whole lot of judges um, that are listed. And they're all in the book of Judges. And they, it's a nice chronological one because it says, you know, this judge operated for so many years. And, and um, all of that, that happened there. And then we've got Ruth. Um, and we've got the time of all the way through to Saul, and then we start with the kings of, of um, Israel. So Saul, David, Solomon, and then the rest of them. Um, Jonah fits in, in there, just before Isaiah. And we've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, and uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah was prophesying just before the exile. So towards the end of all of the kings of Israel, the kingdom of Israel splits into the northern kingdoms, ten of them, and the southern kingdoms, two of those. Um, and then... Isaiah started to prophesy into that, and then Jeremiah, who's a bit more bleak, uh, because they were getting closer and closer to kind of the real destruction of Israel. And then the southern tribes of Israel were taken into exile in Babylon, and that was 70 years, and that was prophesied by Jeremiah, in exile for 70 years. Um, and then we have them coming back from exile. So we've got uh, so Ezekiel, Daniel and Ezekiel, obviously, in exile. Daniel in the den of lions, and that's where he fits in. Um, Ezekiel, and then we start to see them coming back. So we've got Ezra, Nehemiah, various individuals who, who bring back the nation of Israel. Um, Esther fits in there because she uh, was um, the, the wife of the Persian emperor, so she, she, uh, she helped in the process of getting them back as well. Um, and then we have the intertestament period, so uh, a period of about 400 years from the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, to the beginning of the New Testament. And then the New Testament. So Jesus and all the Gospels, Peter, Paul. And then the last person to write was John. Um, probably John lived to be quite old, about 100 years old. Um, and he wrote probably quite late, around about 1995 AD, he wrote the last of his books. So 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation, Book of Revelation. Um, so that's kind of a very broad overview where everyone kind of fitted in in, in the context of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So helpful to get something like this, just so you can refer to it. So if you open the Bible and you think, oh, I'm reading this, where does this fit into? And certainly you'll see if you've got a study Bible or you can now go on the internet and have a look. Uh, the beginning of all the books generally has a reasonably good outline as to roughly where it fits in. Um, there are some, you know, there's some different opinions and it's good to understand what those different opinions. It doesn't matter too much, so for example, um, some of the some of the historians will take a really simplistic view, for example, in the New Testament that Paul was always in prison in Rome, and so you know whenever he says I'm in prison, they say well he must have been in Rome at that point, and then try and fit everything around that. Others say well it seems like Paul was actually in prison in a whole lot of places, and there were prisons in Corinth and Ephesus and other places, and we know he was definitely imprisoned in Philippi as well because there's a story of that him breaking out of or singing hymns, remember then what prison. Uh, earthquake happened and they got out. So, and Peter, for example, was in prison, we know, in Jerusalem. So, 
there definitely were Roman prisons around. And so when you see Roman prison, it doesn't necessarily mean he's a Roman. And that you know, gives you a, a different perspective. But it's good to understand all of those different perspectives as well. All right, so just to, to conclude this, it's really helpful. I found it's really helpful just to have a, a general understanding of, you know, when things happened in Scripture and, and to understand that Scripture is not written chronologically. So if you start Genesis and read the Revelation, you're not going to get a chronological view. And it can be a little confusing at times. You think, when did this happen? Why? And why is this before this and after this? And it's because it's kind of mixed in. So, you know, David, for example, you can see him there. Um, there's no book of the Bible called David. So if you're ever in a trivial pursuit game and someone says, <laughs> the preacher says, turn to the book of David. But David obviously wrote all of, or many of his psalms. And so a lot of the psalms speak about his life and what happened in his life. Guys? Um, yeah, so it's good to understand, right? Psalms slot in over there. Um, Samuel was obviously the prophet who anointed both Saul and David as king. Um, and there is a book of Samuel, two books of Samuel, actually. So a lot of those stories come out of that. Um, and you'll see, for example, Samuel and Kings overlap each other. So it's good to understand uh, where those things all fit in. All right, so first thing, really, if you want to understand Scripture, get, a, get, an, you know, get an idea of where you are in the timeline of Scripture when you're reading Scripture. Um, all right, and then what happened where? Good to understand, you know, the, the places in the Bible. Um, and one of the reasons I think it's really helpful to understand the places in the Bible is because Scripture puts so much emphasis on the places. Uh, you don't have to go very far to realize there's lots and lots and lots of detail around the places in Scripture. So let's have a look at some examples. Uh, Acts chapter 16. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So obviously Paul wasn't in Macedonia because the guy was in his vision was saying, Come over to us. Um, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we read the story, and if you gloss over it, you think, okay, well, he's in some place, and he's going to another place, and all good. So um, verse 11 says then, so sending sail from Troas, so okay, so now we know that we're in Troas, uh, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. Uh, now, I'm sure many of you have been there and you know exactly where it is. And the following day to Neapolis. So, obviously, they're about a day apart, but, you know. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. So, we start to get a sense of, of where all of these things were, were happening. But I found it more useful to actually get a map and have a look. Actually, need a pointer here. So, you'll see there, there's Troas. Uh, let me get my mouse pointer up here. There's Troas up there. Uh, so it's in modern-day Turkey. Uh, there's um, Crimea, if you're modern-day Crimea, so now you know. That's where all the news is happening. That's where the Russians are bombing all along here. There's Odessa, modern-day Odessa. So it's down here, Troas. And they went to Samthrace, which is this little island over here. It's a Greek island, it just sits over there. So you can see, oh, okay, so they must have gone in a boat because to go from here to here, you have to sail. And then from here, they went to Neapolis and then on to Philippi. So now you get a sense, okay, I mean, it's, it's quite far. Um, they did that over a couple of days and they, and they arrived at Philippi. And Philippi is in the province of Macedonia. So now you, get a, you start to get a sense, okay, this, this kind of all fits together. 
And then you carry on reading the book of, of Acts, and you'll see that they went on to Thessalonica, Berea, and then down to Athens, and then ended up in Corinth. And there's things like Paul went to, you know, Paul made an oath and cut his hair off in Centuria, which is over here. And he wrote some books from, he wrote one of his letters from down here. Down here. So it's good to know. And then from there he sailed across to Ephesus and then down into Jerusalem, which is all the way down here. Um, remember, Paul called the elders of Ephesus to the beach at Miletus, which is down here, and had breakfast with him on the beach. So it's good also to, okay, so they would have, you know, it's a fair trip. They would have taken a day or so to get down there. Um, <clears throat> so uh, it's really helpful just to have a map there so you can start to, and I think what it does is it makes it a little bit more real. Um, and as, we, as, a, as I'm going to get to a little bit later, puts things into context. Right, just to give you an idea, so Jerusalem to Corinth, which so Paul did that on his second journey. He went from, uh, not quite Jerusalem, but close. But Jerusalem to Corinth is about 3,000 kilometers. Now, Paul and Silas and Timothy and those guys would have pretty much walked most of that way. Um, possibly some ship movement backwards and forwards but it's basically if you want to think about it it's here to Cape Town and back so imagine walking from here to Cape Town and back um, it's a it's a long walk it's, it's going to take you weeks or months not not days um, so these guys you know it, it, and, and it, once again it's just sense of the time and the scales and it says you know Paul went to Jerusalem and then he came back to Ephesus and then he went to Corinth you've got to realize that was not a you know, he didn't jump on EasyJet and it was, uh, it was a process to get there. So, once again, gives you a real sense of what they had to go through. Um, here's another interesting piece. So, Jesus, uh, with his disciples, and we can read this in Mark, in those days, a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and he said, look, I've got compassion on the crowd. They've been with me now three days and they've nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry, they'll faint on the way. Some of them come from far away. His disciples answered, how can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So they were in a desolate place. Um, and, Jesus, and, and he went on, and he fed 4,000 people. So he feeds them and he sends them away. And then immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So we know that now Jesus was in a desolate place next to a lake obviously because he got into a boat and he sailed across to Dalmanutha um, and then he left Dalmanutha and he got into the boat again and he went to the other side so this lake Lake Galilee he went to the other side of the lake and then he comes to Bethsaida and they brought him a blind man and he ends up healing him and then he took his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked them who do people say that I am and then we know the story, Peter, you know, they say, some say this guy, some say that guy. And Peter says, no, you, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, this revelation has come not from God, uh, not from man, but from God himself. And on this revelation, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So that happened right here on this journey. After six days after that, he took Peter, James and John with him and led them up to a high mountain. So he went to the mountain um, and he was transfigured before them. So the transfiguration happened in that context. He just come from Lake Galilee, Bethsaida, up to Caesarea Philippi, and then up. Um, and then he comes down after the transfiguration, came to his disciples, and there was a big argument because there was this kid who was demon-possessed, and the scribes and Pharisees couldn't help him, and Jesus heals him. 
and the, you know, we, we quite often quote this scripture, but this is where it happened. Jesus said to the Father, if you can, the Father says, you know, if you can heal my son, please do it. And Jesus says, if you can, he says, all things are possible for him who believes. And then the Father cries out, I do believe, but help my unbelief. It's a wonderful um, piece of scripture because I think we can all relate to that. But that happened in the context of he just came off the transfiguration on the mountain and he'd come down. Um, and then it says he went from there and passed through Galilee, which is a province again, and then they came to Capernaum, um, which is pretty much where Jesus was based for a lot of his ministry, preached a lot out of Capernaum. Um, and then he went to a house and then he asked them, Who's this, what were you guys talking about? I knew what they were talking about, but he, he asked them anyway, and they were all embarrassed because they were asking, arguing about who was the greatest. So that's in the context of where he'd been. So once again, the feeding of the 4,000 probably happened around about here somewhere because this is quite a remote spot in the Decapolis. Um, then it says, you know, he jumped in the boat to cross the sea to Dalmanthan, which is over here. Um, and then from there he crossed the other side, which is Bethsaida, uh, Bethsaida. Then he went up through here to Caesarea Philippi. And then it was over here that he asked him, who do you, who do you say that I am? And we know that it, it was... It, you know, it was a very poignant time. Jesus was establishing the fact that he was going to build the church. But he did it there because so the Caesars all thought that they were gods. Um, so there were men who claimed to be gods. Um, and in that spot in Caesarea Philippi, there's the, the temple of Pan. Uh, and Pan was a god who fell in love with a human and he was a god and he became a man. So we have this real juxtaposition of the Caesars, who were men who wanted to be gods, and this story of a god who wanted to become a man. Um, and it, they had these enormous rocks in the hills there. So when, when, you know, when Jesus says to Peter, you know, you are Peter, which means stone in, in Greek. So you are Peter, you would have maybe picked up a little stone. And you're like, yeah, this is you. But on this rock, and you might have pointed to one of these enormous rocks. On this foundation, I'm going to be building my church. And, and Peter, you've got it. I am the son of the living God. I'm, you know, and, 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 that, and they would have been talking, you know, and it would have been a journey. That's, a, that's not a short, you know, they would have walked a couple of days to get up there. And then it says he took them to a high mountain, and Mount Hermon is right there. So probably that was where he did the transfiguration. Useful to know. Just a short trip up. Then he came back down, and then he healed the boy, and then he came back down through Galilee, this section over here, um, and then back to Capernaum, which is where he was based. So, just useful to kind of see it. And for me, it just makes it come so much more alive. Why did he ask that question in that place? Um, because he, you know, he was trying to do something specific. All right. So you might be looking at all this and say, well, I don't really worry about the time and the places. I'm not that kind of person. I'm much more interested in the people. Well, it's another lens that we can look at scripture. And I, I also actually find this probably the most interesting um, is to look at people um, and their relationships and start to piece things together in Scripture. Because Scripture doesn't say, this is now the story of Barnabas, and then tell you a very detail about Barnabas. There's no like, place you can go and look that up. Well, there are nowadays on the internet, but it's useful to actually go and read them in Scripture. So let's do a quick kind of look at some of this. Acts chapter 12, um, the story in Jerusalem, so they're based in Jerusalem, and Peter has been arrested. And he was put in prison, and you know some other people have been killed. John the Baptist was killed, so you know, he was in prison, and then he got beheaded. So Peter's a little nervous of being in prison at that point. He's under uh, a lot of Roman guards, um, and then you know he's fast asleep in the middle of the night. And it's quite interesting that you know he's 
John the Baptist has been beheaded. He's now in prison. There were, I can't remember the number, 16 guards or something guarding him alone. Um, so he, you would have thought he'd be pretty nervous, but he was fast asleep. And it's, a, it's an interesting one because remember Jesus had said to Peter um, when he restored him, he said to him, you know, you, you're going to get old and people will lead you by the hand. So Peter's like, well, I'm not old. Jesus said I'm going to get old. I'm not going to lead me by the hand, so I'm good. I'm not going to die tonight or tomorrow. So he was fast asleep. The angel has to wake him up, shake him and say, listen, are you leaving? He, he walks out and he doesn't, he thinks it's a dream. And so he went out in the street and he realized, oh, it's another dream. I'm actually out of prison. I better go somewhere. I can't be wandering around the street. I'm going to get arrested again. So it says, when this had dawned on him with the fact that he had realized he is actually out of prison, um, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. So we see this, this kid, this, or this person, John, who's called Mark, who possibly, probably wrote the book of Mark. Um, and once again, he's right there in the middle of, of the action. Went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. So it's kind of very unusual to speak about, firstly, the house of a lady, because it would have been very unusual. Uh, the Bible does that a lot. It breaks the, kind of the whole um, patriarchal structure that was there. Um, and then references this youngster, John, who's also called Mark. So John, John Mark. And many people had gathered and were praying. So then we know the story knocks on the door and the servant comes to the door and she's so excited that she, she doesn't open the door, she leaves him outside, still locked up. Um, anyway, so that's, we get introduced to this youngster called John, who is also called Mark. Then in Acts chapter 13, the next chapter, so we kind of get this introduction to this youngster, and then it says, you know, Barnabas and Saul, at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, it says, in the church in Antioch, it lists all the elders of the church, and it says, while they were praying, um, the Holy Spirit came and said, Paul and Barnabas need to go on this trip. So they prayed over them, and they sent them on their way. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas went to Seleucia, which is pretty much from Antioch, you go straight down to the coast, and you hit this little town called Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus, which is that island. Some of you probably have been to Cyprus now. Now I'm talking about real, real holiday spots. Um, it's the bizarre island that was invaded by Turkey a few years ago, so it's, uh, it's half Turkish and half Greek, kind of. So that, all the Cypriots are Turkey. We're not Greek, we're Cypriots. So um, uh, when they arrived at, then they arrived at Samos, which is a town right on the, on the, on, on the Turkish side. Um, still, still there, you can see it today. Uh, they proclaimed the word of God. And they had John to assist them, same guy, John, who's also called Mark. So, this youngster tra traveling with him, helping out, carrying bags, making stuff, I think, whatever, I don't know what he did to assist them, but he did something. Cool things. Acts chapter 15. So they do this whole trip when they go to Lystra and Iconium and Derby and Antioch Poseidon and make their way back and, and they're rejoicing greatly because the word of God you know, comes out and everyone celebrates. And then after some months, uh, so there's, there's another whole deal they go down to Jerusalem and they come back up again. Then after some days, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back to all those places we went to. And encourage the people in. It's, it's really exciting. Um, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. So, it's okay, we see this lad. But Paul thought it best not to take, <coughs> take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now we don't know why he withdrew, but it's certainly irritated Paul significantly. So we see a very frustrated Paul and a broken relationship. And there arose a sharp disagreement. 
Um, it's very strong language. So these two, Paul, two very, very good friends, Paul Barnabas had a proper Barney. I think that might be where the word Barney comes from, actually. <laughs> I'm speculating. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So these two amazing guys have a major, major fight. Split up and go off on their way. Barnabas takes this guy, uh, John Mark, Mark, John, called Mark. And Paul takes Silas. And off they go. And they go separate ways. But that's not the end of the story. So we, we, we kind of read this. If we carry on going through Scripture, we see in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, and he says, so 2 Timothy is, is quite a bleak book. Uh, seems like, we know that in Acts 19, there's a huge uproar in Ephesus. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the context of that. There's this temple called for the goddess Diana, and um, the, it, was, it was one of the economic hubs of Ephesus, and the gospel had become so rampant through the city that um, the, the, the silversmiths who were selling the statues uh, of the goddess Diana were losing a lot of money, and so they, they basically made a right, toy toying and all of that. Um, and they tried to get Paul uh, executed, get him into the, the theatre, which is not like the Baxter Theatre in Cape Town, it's the, it's the place where he went to get executed. Um, and then Paul basically flees, gets out of Ephesus and goes um, up to, um, back into Macedonia and gets away. And then he writes, he says, so he's writing to Timothy and he says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon because Demas, he fell in love with the world and he's deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. So the only person I've had, so we think that Paul might have got beaten up anyway on his way out because the only person who stuck with him was his doctor friend. Um, so if the doctor sticks with you, you know it's probably not a good sign. And he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. So somehow between this big fight, and we don't know what happened with Barnabas, where they split up and they went different ways, God had restored this relationship, and now we see Mark is very useful to, to Paul in his ministry. So one, we see this restoration, but two, it's not interesting to kind of figure out you know, what happened. So we're in Colossians, Paul's writing and he says, um, so Paul is in prison because he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. I said, no wonder Barnabas had a soft spot for him because he was his cousin. So now we know a little bit more. Mark and Barnabas were cousins, um, which is probably why he went with them in the first place. Probably a much younger cousin. Um, and then Paul says, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So Mark was basically doing ministry on behalf of Paul while he was stuck in prison. So he had come to him, um, probably a little bit before um, you were at the previous one that I just read, um, and he was really assisting him, saying, well, you stuck here in prison, but I can certainly take your teachings out and get them to the churches and the church in Colossae. And Philemon, Philemon is a very short little book, only one chapter, so... It's just Philemon verse 23. There's no, we put the chapter 1, but it's only one chapter. So. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a similar group to, if you go back, so you see there, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Um, and then he says, you know, Demas left him after that. Um, 
and mentions a few others, Titus there, Luke, um, but Mark, Mark is the useful one. Mark really proved his, his worth. I mean, he, he stuck it out while the others were deserting him, and that's why Paul said, look, this, this was my team, but these guys, you know, a lot of them left me, um, but Mark, you're the one who stuck with me. So it's a, it's a great way. So now whenever you kind of read through these stories, you, you start to look for, for clues of these people and where they fit in um, and who they are. And it's amazing, even in Scripture, so Paul, if you go look at the end of Romans, for example, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and there's a whole chapter on greet, you know, all these different people. Greet this person, this person, oh, and this person, and his cousin, and this person was really helpful to me. I was in prison, that guy, so greet him as well. He lists, and you think, like, what's the point of all these names, listed all the names? But actually, when you start to piece together all the names, and who they are, and where they would have traveled with Paul, and what happened to them, and who stuck with him, and who didn't stick with him, you start to get such a richer feel for, for the whole scripture. And suddenly, I find I like read those things. And I just cross reference and uh, do a search to see where else is this, this guy mentioned. And then to realize that possibly this guy Mark ended up after all of this writing the book of Mark, piecing together, getting all the stories. Um, and if you then go through Mark, Mark is Mark is actually very chronological. We read a little bit of it before uh, when we were talking about going through the Caesarea Philippi trip. Mark's very good. We did this, then we went there, then we did this, then we went there, then we went there. Um, and the next, you know, he'll often say things like, and then the next day, you know, or early in the morning, Jesus got up to pray. That's out of Mark. Um, because Mark, um, I think, was there a lot of the time and remembered a lot of these stories, but they definitely did a lot of the research. And it seems like some of the others, because he was a, very much a first first person view of what happened and very, very personal in the city. Yeah. So personally you told about the Roman God whipping his, his coat off and you know anything underneath it. So um, very pers- very personal, very like right there as opposed to some of the others who were very much second person or third person accounts of what happened. Alright, how are we doing? Happy so far. Any questions or comments? Helpful. So, so that's Mark, you know, talking about, is he the one who wrote Mark? Possibly. So we, we don't know for sure, because, but, but because he's mentioned so much in, in Acts, and it's always, and John was called Mark, and then later on Paul always refers to him as Mark, so it's like Paul's name for it was Mark. Um, so, you know, there seems to be, and we can't say, because Mark was a reasonably common name, um, and we don't know for sure. But uh, certainly the early church felt that Mark was the same guy who put together the Gospel of Mark. This, this Mark here. So there's pretty, pretty much consensus that this Mark is the same Mark that is mentioned in Acts. Um, because it all, the story ties together. They had a big fight. And Paul wanted to be very clear that this guy who I had a fight with, early on in my ministry, has now proven himself. He's proven his method. He's been really, really good. Uh, and he mentions him a lot, like these kind of scriptures. So, and, and the fact that the Holy Spirit put all of this together, you know, once again, these are let, random letters that were written. Paul wasn't thinking, oh, this is going to be the fourth book that I wrote that's going to go into the Bible. The Bible was only canonized, put together as a set of books uh, some 200 years later. So, um, yeah, it's, it's most, you know, most definitely the same person. All right. Any other questions? So, to summarize, understanding when things happened, where they happened, and who they happened with, and specifically for me, the different teams that were working together, uh, 
really, really starts to help bring all of this about. So when you, when you see you know, Paul Winkle plays Geophysics United you know, across the sea, I know they literally, and I wrote where his hands are. Um, but then he took with them a quill and exodus, and they stayed there you know, while, while other stuff happened. And, and the Bible's full of like this happened, and these people went here, and this guy went here, and this person spoke to them. And then you see them mentioned at the ends of other letters like this. Okay, that's who they are, that's how they fit in. Um, really, really helpful, and, and it starts to, once again, make the whole thing come alive. It's not just like a verse that I can quote, you know, Lord, I do believe, help my belief. Okay, that was a guy, he was up there in the S.E.S. Raphael Prize. He's had just come down from the Transfiguration. He was, you know, empty, he was going through it. God had just said to him, this is my son, and I love him, I'm well pleased. And I listened to him. So there's, you know, that, that's the context. And he comes down, and he's, he's just had this incredible encounter, like supernatural encounter. And, and these scribes and Pharisees, he doesn't really dig so much. Uh, can't, can't get his ear in that. Oh, come on, it's great. I'm so God. Whack. And then there's disciples say, how, how, how come is it that you know you could do it but they couldn't? And he says, Well, you know, these things come because of praying fasting, but actually when you read the whole backstory, fed four thousand people from there you've gone here, you asked, you know, people that said, No, you Christ the Son of the Living God, you've been up and transfigured, come down. There's no ways that demon had any chance against him, once you understand the backstory and where it all fits in. So that's why it's really, really helpful. All right. Couple of principles and then we'll, we'll wrap up. I'm trying to finish just off the edge. Four things which I've found helpful. So I'm, a, I'm not an expert theologian. I'm just a regular guy who, who reads the Bible. But these are things that have been taught to me over the years and I've tried to apply. So first one is put myself under the Bible's authority. So I always say, well, I'm going to trust that what the Bible says is authoritative. So I'm going to live my life based on that rather than just saying, well, it's good advice and I'll slot it in you know, with the other good advice I have. So if the Bible says this, I'm going to live my life like that. Secondly, trust, uh, trust the Holy Spirit to guide me. Um, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is coming as I said, to teach you things. We'll, we'll, we'll come to the detail of that. Third one, which I find super, super helpful, is to always try and understand the context before you try and apply the Scripture. Because sometimes you read something, and we know in life, if you take something out of context, it just doesn't make sense. So apply it in context. And then finally, use scripture to interpret scripture. Um, so often, you know, you read something that I just don't understand this. Read other scriptures around it, which help and bring it back. And these two work together really nicely. So understanding the context and then using scripture to interpret scripture really helps. So always say, okay, this verse I'm battling with. First thing I do, read this verses before, read the verses after. Try and understand the context of that verse in scripture and then look at scripture. Interpreting scripture. So let's dive into each of these. First principle, put yourself under the Bible's authority. Hebrews 4 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this is no regular book. This is no um, wind in the wilderness, or what's it called? Wind in the willows. <laughs> Gone with the wind. Gone with the wind, whatever. <laughs> Harry Potter and uh, whatever, whatever. This is this is not a regular this is a book that will that will get inside you and sort you out properly. Um, and as you read it, it has the power and the potential to do that. It's completely different to any other kind of book you've ever read in your life. Uh, this is a picture 
of the Gutenberg Press was uh, put together in Germany. Uh, the first printing press in the Western world and started printing books. And one of the reasons that we have printed books like this is because of these original printing presses that were created. And uh, the very first book that they printed was the Bible, or a section of the Bible at least. So the first thing they put together was the Bible. Now, this is the thing which I think many people don't realize. But we don't have the printed Bible because the printing press was invented. The Gutenberg invented the printing press in order to mass produce the Bible. His only desire was to print the Bible. We actually have other books because of the Bible, because the Bible created the printing press. So that's, that's how unique and powerful this book is. Um, so the Bible was not printed because of the printing press. The printing press was invented to print the Bible. And therefore we have other books. So the Bible is still by far the most widely printed book in the world. Uh, rough estimates, about 6 billion copies of the Bible have been printed. The Harry Potter series is the next, the whole series over 400 million. So it's getting there, but it's still got a long way to go. Um, but the point is, this, this book kind of created the space for other books to be produced, rather than you know, tagging along. Um, Matthew 5.18, I, I didn't touch on this, but I think it's worth touching on again a few weeks ago in my preach. Uh, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Um, I think it's a, a tipple and a jot or something in Hebrew, which is basically the tiniest little pieces of text, like a, literally a dot. The tiny, tiny little piece of the text. Jesus says, nothing's going to change. Now, Jesus said this probably around about 30 AD. 30 to 40 AD. Um, now, 300 years before that, a group of scribes had copied various scriptures, including the book of Isaiah, sealed them up, they were in the desert, and hidden them. Um, what was the reason they did it? Uh, the, the Essenes, or maybe it's another group, I think it's them. No one had seen or touched those scriptures for 300 years when Jesus said that. Now just think about that, 300 years, 300 years ago was, we are now in 2000 and something, so it was the 1700s, I think 1652, was that when the first guy arrived in the cap on the ship, you know, there were other side of things around at the time, but the first kind of guy from Europe arrived on the ship, that's 300 years ago. That's how long ago, when Jesus said this, these, uh, this copy of Isaiah had been hidden away from. That copy of Isaiah and other books of the scripture uh, remained hidden for another 1,900 years. They were discovered in 1946 and 1947 in, uh, in close to the Dead Sea, so they got known, kind of known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. In, 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 okay. So 2,200 years from when they were sealed up. It's just phenomenal. 2,200 years later. We find these things and they open them up. And this is the amazing thing. The text was the same as the latest copies that were available. So there wasn't, there was no change, nothing changed. This, the scripture was still the scripture. There is no, there's no other text that we have that comes anywhere close to that. Um, not by 2,000 years close. It's like an order of magnitude difference in terms of the, the quality of, of how it's been kept over the years. So not only has the Bible been put together over all of these centuries, uh, millennia, but we have copies from, like, 
copies that were made 2,200 years ago, handwritten, and they're still the same. Still, no one went, oh no, Isaiah's completely different to the way it was. But, uh, it's exactly the same. It's unbelievable. 2,200 years and no errors in that time from copying. Um, and that's got to be a miracle. It's got to be like God's got to be over this. So once again, there is no other book like this that you've ever read. So, maybe I'll start at the bottom there. Trust the Word of God. It is, after all, the Word of God. And John, John picks us up in chapter 1 of John. John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He basically is equating Jesus to the Word of God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and about Him. Nothing was made that was made. Uh, not anything was made that was made. Uh, and then later on he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Um, and so there's this picture of the Father, of the Creator, but creating with Jesus, who is the word of God. And then, I'll skip through. So, yeah, trust the word of God. Let it change your belief system. So, we live in a world that has belief systems that come from all over the place. People believe all sorts of things. You can go on the internet and find any topic you like. Is COVID real? There'll be a whole lot of people say yes, there'll be a whole lot of people say no, there'll be all the reasons what they give. Um, yeah. um, there's a quote um, I love that Francis Chan says, and he says, Whenever I read the Bible and I come across something I don't agree, agree with, I have to assume I'm wrong. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to live. <laughs> and, and let it change your belief system. So there's things that that I believe are totally contrary to the generally accepted view in the world because of exactly that. I'm going to choose to believe in this incredible book that, that it's right and I'm wrong and, uh, and live like it. It's great. It's a, I'm a great way to live. Um, do something about what it says. So the Bible itself says, you know, the man who looks at the Word of God intently and then forgets about it is like a man who builds his house on the sand. Not helpful. Um, I'm learning all about foundations at the moment. Um, foundations are flipping big. Pretty much a big deal. Uh, and deep and expensive. Um, <laughs> but the reason is so that when those storms and the winds come, you know, it's not going to fall down. And, and obviously let scripture change you. Alright. So principle number two, trust the Holy Spirit to God. So not only do we have this incredible book, it's unlike any other book we have. And we can read it. Like my son says, just read it. <laughs> um, we also get the Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us. And Jesus said this, he said, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, so the word there, helper, can also be translated advocate. So it's not like, you know, when, you, when you're in court um, and, and the advocate gets up. Yes, he's helping you, but it's, a, it's, it's different to you know, the lady who owns your shirts for you. It's a different kind of help. Um, and the Holy Spirit is more like the advocate kind of help than the ironing lady kind of help. Um, you know, he helps you in terms of let me let me take control here and, and help you understand how this thing works. Um, and, and I'm sure you're good advocates and bad advocates. This one's a particularly good one. Right. Um, the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. He's going to teach you and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Um, so that's what the Holy Spirit does. It teaches us and he helps us remember stuff. It's really cool. I mean, to have someone like that in your final year of maths exam, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or a 
Cancer in, in liver. Um, so, uh, more than that, anyway. <laughs> to your point. And then later on in John 16, two chapters later, he still, Jesus says this. So not only is he going to teach you these things and bring to remembrance, but also he's, he's, Jesus look, I've got so much more that I want to tell you. I, I just can't get through it all right now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So not only is he going to remind us and teach us about the things Jesus says, he's also going to guide us into the new things that Jesus didn't get a chance to say um, and, and guide us into truth. So it's just the most incredible teacher. So we can take the Word of God and say, Holy Spirit... Please will you explain this to me. Please will you teach this to me. That's, that's really what he's, he's incredibly good at. Um, and that's what he came to do. And it's the most amazing thing. So not only do we have this incredible book that we can submit to its authority, we have the Holy Spirit who will teach us, who's committed to teaching us, reminding us. It's very interesting. Um, you know, when Jesus once went into the wilderness for 40 days, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he spent time studying scripture, and then we know the devil came to him with enemies, and he said, do this, do that, and, and Jesus refuted him with scripture. Um, the, the three scriptures he quoted all come from Deuteronomy, and they're all within two chapters of each other. So it's not like he even needed the whole arsenal of scriptures, like the Holy Spirit had said, these are, these are the two chapters you need to concentrate on. And, you know, and so the Holy Spirit would have guided him there and taught him. Now, I don't know, maybe that's all he had when he went into the desert and just read it uh, many times. But whatever it was, those scriptures are pretty powerful and they, and they rebuked the devil and says the devil had to leave him eventually because the power of the script, uh, scripture is so strong. So the Holy Spirit, I think, oftentimes will say, hey, you know, here's a good scripture to go through, meditate on this, read this. I'll see something in there and I'll go, wow, this is amazing. Um, and then I find later in the day it's just super helpful in whatever context that I go into. Um, so the Holy Spirit is here to teach and guide us. So it's not just dry doctrine. It's living, active, and powerful. Not just because it's got power in itself, but because the Holy Spirit empowers the Word of God to us as well. All right. Principle three, understand the context. Move a little bit. Um, and, and the way I always do it is I say, right, I read a, a scripture that's maybe I don't understand or... I first say, well, what was the original context? Where was that written to? What, what was happening at the time when this was written? Out of that, then I understand. Okay, then that's the message that I need to understand. So the message always fits into the context. Once I understand the message, then I can apply that message to my life and my context. Because my life and my context is very different to the original context. And it's really helpful just to, to understand that original context. So let's do a little exercise on that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. All right, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Amen. <laughs> so, the obvious question, was Paul a complete chauvinist? Now, out of context, this actually sounds quite unbiblical. If we look at all of the other scripture around here, you know, we just had a look at, at, at scripture and acts, it highlighted the fact that the house was, belonged to a, a, a woman, and, and she had a son, John Mark. Um, and many times we see you know, the first person to arrive at the tomb of Jesus was highlighted as Mary Magdalene. It was a woman. And she went and called the disciples. Now, that was a very uh, wrong way to explain stuff. Rather, you know, in that culture, you would rather say, no, let's not, let's not include the woman, but you know, just get a job got to the tomb, that's good enough. Um, but the writers of the scriptures were, were very 
for their day. Super pro woman. Jesus, I mean, you know, Colossians says there's you know, free or slaves in Christ. There's no men or women. I mean, that would have freaked people out. Um, so this scripture is kind of, Chief Paul, what are you trying to say? What? So the first thing we've got to say is, well, what's the context? And the first place to look for the context is in Scripture itself. So I normally, as I said, just open it up, go back to the chapter, have a look. So Paul is writing to Timothy, uh, and he's, he's writing so from Macedonia, and he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So that's the reason for the letter. I'm leaving. I want you to stick around and stay in Ephesus. I'm going to Macedonia, which we have from the map. So to put that map back up so we're clear on where it all is happening. So here's Ephesus. Paul had to flee, run away, go up to Macedonia. Somewhere here, Philippi probably. And he writes back to, to Timothy in Ephesus. After this riot had just happened, you know, the sellers of the, the silversmiths had caused a riot. were very unhappy about the whole thing. And he's saying, listen, the main thing I want you to do is to make sure that people don't get up and teach doctrine that is wrong. That's your job. So I'm leaving you behind in Ephesus to do that. So we've got to ask the question, well, what was going on in Ephesus? What kind of doctrine were people wanting to promote or teach? So in the first century, the city of Ephesus uh, was at the crossroads of civilization and was politically known as the supreme metropolis of Asia. Um, it was a port city, uh, so you had ships coming in and going out, um, but it was also the, the end of the Silk Road. So the Silk Road came all the way from Asia and finished up at Ephesus. Um, the, the Roman governor of the region lived there. Uh, so that, that whole region, the seat of power was Ephesus. Um, it was the religious center for worship of the fertility goddess known by the Greeks as Optimus and the Romans as Diana. The temple on the outskirts of the city was one of the ancient seven ones of the world. It was enormous. Ruins are still there, you can go and look at them. Um, but it was this enormous temple. So not only was it a, a religious place, but economically, uh, Ephesus was a giant among first century cities. And this, as I said, strategic location, uh, the chief commercial center of Western Asia Minor, um, hoverboard ships and its two major roads gave access to cities both along the coast and inland uh, into modern day Turkey. Diana's Temple, considered sacrosanct through the Roman world, became the primary banking institute in Asia Minor. So, not only was it this religious temple, but it was an economic hub as well. And in fact, the banking happened there, so loans were, were done there. Um, trading would have done through there. Uh, people would have used the temple as a place to store funds for their, their trips. Morally, however, the city was bankrupt. Ephesus was controlled by the educated prostitutes. Um, so now, these were very educated ladies affiliated with Diana worship. Part of the cult of Diana was the use of ritual prostitution, whereby the devotee became joined with the goddess through her priestesses, ensuring her favor throughout the year. So, worship, taking worship to a whole new level. Um, and, and this was done and endorsed, and done in one of the seven wonders of, all, of the ancient world. Um, the Temple of Aphrodite was in Corinth, and they had a thousand temple prostitutes working there. And this one was much bigger, so I don't know exactly how many. But <coughs> This was what was happening. So that's the context. This is kind of an artist's impression of what the temple would have looked like based on the ruins. But it was, it was grand. Grand at a, at a huge scale. Alright, so these highly in, 
Influential and educated woman weren't getting saved. That was the whole problem in Acts chapter 19. Now we read it and we just think silversmiths were all men. Um, some of them were probably men, but um, there were a lot of women involved in that. And a lot of the women were getting saved. That seems to be a big problem. Getting saved and coming into the church. And they had no clue about scripture because they had grown up working in the temple of Diana, the fertility goddess, buying their trades, doing what they did best. Um, and Paul writes to Timothy and the exact piece of scripture you just read this is the context i desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works so these you come in this lady is very influential very rich very little clothing comes gets saved comes into the church and Worship in her context is, you know, that's the context. And she comes in now, has no idea of any scripture. The Roman, Roman, Roman religion only was, was what she'd grown up with. But highly educated in that. And, uh, and wanting to, you know, express the joy of her new salvation, understanding a little bit of the gospel message. But, um, and, and used to teaching, used to being up there, used to public speaking, and used to being in charge, and used, used to running things. So that's the context. And Paul says to Timothy, listen, I'm leaving you here. I've got to flee because these guys are going to kill me. You need to stay here. You need to make sure that these ladies who come in do not... Um, so the, 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 next, the very next verse, verse 11. So just so you're clear, verse 10. I'm sorry, I'll put it on the next page. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So in other words, let the woman, these women come in let them learn scripture. Let them submit themselves to the authority of scripture. It's not, it's not around submissiveness to men. It's in the context of scripture. They've got to submit to the authority of scripture. Um, and then I do not permit, permit a woman to teach. In that context, these are the women talking about. I don't want these ladies who live their whole lives in this context, who are very good at what they do, and are very influential and very powerful and very rich and very flashy, to come into the church and to, to try and apply this gospel of Jesus into this context that they have until they've learned some scriptures. So that's, that's, the, that's the context. And when we say, okay, well, that's the context. Now this makes sense. I also not particularly want these ladies to get up and be teaching from the front um, until they've, they've learned. Now, in fact, what Paul was saying is, I want them to go and learn scripture and to submit themselves to the authority of scripture. Why would he say that if he didn't want them ultimately to be giving up the teaching? So actually, I think when you read it in context, what Paul is saying is, I want these ladies to go and learn scripture so that they can teach. I don't want them to teach now. I don't want them to have authority now because they've got all sorts of wrong preconceived ideas. I want them to come in and I want them to learn. Why? You don't learn just for yourself. You learn so that you can eventually get up and teach. Um, and, that, and that would have... Completely. So as an early century Christian, coming from a very patriarchal society, you would have gone, why does Paul want these women to learn? We don't even let Jewish girls go to school. And now he's taking these ladies who were highly educated, and he wants them to come and learn scripture. Is he crazy? That would have got stuck a first century Jewish reader, male reader. We get stuck on the next verse. They're like, no, that next verse is fine. Keep it there. We don't want verse 11. We, like, we don't want verse 12. So it all depends on your context. 
and where you fit in. And in fact, if we then apply the other one, the scripture, um, interpret scripture, Galatians 3, I quoted just now, there's neither a Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. That was, now Galatia was, was the province that Ephesus was in. And that's what Paul's writing to the church in Galatia. Colossians 3, um, verse 11 here, there's no Greek, but Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. The same message, it doesn't say man or woman, but the context of Colossians 3 is very clearly to men and women to men and women, and he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So very clear that he wants men and women to be teaching, um, and teaching one another. And then Acts 18, once again, another very controversial scripture if you're a first century Christian, we kind of, we've, we've broken through a lot of that patriarchal stuff, so, but it says, meanwhile a Jew named Apollos, once again, just I'll highlighted the names and the places, you know, scripture is full of all of this stuff. A native of Alexandria, that's in Egypt, down south, came to Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, so we've gone north, across the, sea, the Mediterranean Sea. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When, look at that, Priscilla and Aquila. Now we know that when Paul arrived in Corinth, it says he went to meet Aquila and Priscilla. Who were tent makers as he was. But specifically here, the writer of Acts highlights Priscilla first. And the only reason, plausible reason for doing that is because Priscilla would have been the one who did the bulk of the teaching here. She heard, when they heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him, to him the way of God more adequately. Priscilla was clearly doing some of the teaching in, into that context. So, and then, you know, finally, obviously, when Peter got up to preach on the day of Pentecost, you know, in the last days, God says, I'm going to part my spirit on all people, sons and daughters will prophesy, young men will see visions, old men dream dreams. On my servants, both men and women, I'll part my spirit in those days and I'll prophesy. So, super clear that if we take the whole scripture, God expects men and women to, to get up and to teach and to understand scripture. And so, the issue was not that, the issue in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 was not that. Paul was anti-woman teaching, he was anti-people who were not submitted to the authority of scripture teaching. And that's, for me, the super clear message there. So in this church, are we anti-woman teaching? No. Are we anti-people who are not submitted to the authority of scripture teaching? 100%. Because that's what we see in scripture once we've understood the, both the context and let scripture interpret scripture. That's the end. Just like that. Paul? <laughs> Right, so four principles. Submit yourselves to the authority of Scripture. That for me is super key. To Simone's point, uh, yeah, Simone's point. If I disagree with Scripture, I'm going to assume that I'm wrong. So it's a great way to live. Um, keeps us all honest. Let the Holy Spirit teach you. That's what he's super, super good at. Really good at. Thirdly, always look at what is the context. What, what, what is the context of what's being written? It's really helpful to dig in and understand what the, the context of everything is written. And then, um, fourthly, um, let scripture do scripture. So always try and figure out what the scripture is saying. And, and, and you'll generally find there's, there's scriptures you may not get straight away, and there'll always be a scripture before the scripture after that explain clearly. And if you understand the context, you look at the scripture, uh, it makes perfect sense.
Any questions? Yes, Pastor. Not a question, but a comment. Just say uh, thanks, Pete, for this. It's very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. Just it's like cleaning the lenses of your your glasses. You just give it new perspective. And, mm -hmm. and, Um, what's your opinion of the different translations of the Bible? Like, you know, we, do you feel like there's ones that are more accurate or, or one and the same? So, uh, I won't give you my opinion, but I'll explain the different types of translations we get. So, there's the, the King James Version was the original where they tried to do a word-by-word -word translation. So, it's a literal translation of the original language. Um, and then there's the Revised Standard Version, which is in that line, and then the English Standard Version, which is the, kind of the newest of that line. So it's a, it's a literal word-by-word -word translation. But what happens then, so you get a very accurate word-for-word -word translation, and I like those because it's, it's kind of the underlying scripture, and I like to, if I read a scripture that doesn't make a lot of sense, I'd rather dig around and try to understand what the original context was. The NIV and other similar scriptures, the message being kind of the more extreme version of that, take the original concept and then obviously those guys have done all the research they know what the original writer was probably trying to say and they'll try and put that across into modern English so you know, in Afrikaans is an expression and in English it's you would get the actual translation be he's like a man with a mouthful of teeth and you read that and you go okay but the NIV would say you know, what's the right excuse Afrikaans here right translation He's a person who's yeah, he's a person who's, who's got an ability to add to the conversation. So that could be the NIV. So which is right? Both are right. The one the one is very accurate to the original language, but you've got to go and figure out what was the original expression meaning. And the other one was very you know, is, is trusted. But the, the, the risk of of you know, making the assumption that this is what the original language means. Because you don't get the original language and you get the assumption. So I'd say, you know, it's it's called the NIV for a reason. It's the nearly infallible version. So it's pretty right most of the time. And it's much easier to read. And certainly if you stop reading things like the message. I think that Eugene Peterson's done a, an amazing job there. He's really taken concepts out of the original language and, and transliterated them into English to make it so what I'll sometimes do is read the ESV and then read the message to try and figure out what the ESV is trying to say. So yeah, so I don't think you can say one is right and one is wrong. Um, there are like the Passion Translation, there are a number of things where the theologians have said, you've, you've tried to explain this in English, but that's not actually what was the original content. And there's, a, there's more than one of those cases. So it's not dramatically wrong, but people have said, look, it's... We'd rather not maybe have something that's, that's really trying to be very modern and, 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 and it's very nice to read and very helpful to read and certainly makes you think, but it starts to get a little bit away from the original intent. Okay.